Our sermon text is from Romans 8, verses 9 to 11. Again, give your ear to God's infallible word. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, even though the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Now, if the Spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then the one who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who lives in you. Thus far the reading of God's Word. This is the Word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You again for Your Word, which is truth. Help us to submit ourselves to it rather than conforming it to our minds. Conform our minds to Your truth. Uh, you, through your spirit who lives in us as we consider the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Tune our ears and our hearts to your promises, to the way that you work, what you've done for us, and specifically what you are doing through us and in us and what, you will, what you've promised to do in and through us. Help us to see these things for Christ's sake. Amen. Please be seated. As you can see, the title in the bulletin, I think, is, is different from the one that I landed on. They, they both work. It's, it's actually you know, not a bad thing to have two titles. It gives you two different perspectives on, on what I'm going to be trying to get at, maybe. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells the parable of ten virgins, the, the ten bridesmaids, who, you remember, took their lamps and went out with, with, with eager anticipation to meet the bridegroom who was coming. And in that story, the bridegroom represents Jesus, of course, and the ten virgins represent the people of God, the church, those who are eagerly waiting for Jesus to return. In New Covenant terms, the ten bridesmaids represent baptized Christians who are members of local churches, we could say, members of the covenant. All ten of these women appear to be what we would call believers. If we saw them and met them, we would probably say, yes, these are ten believers. All ten had been invited to the wedding banquet by name. All ten professed to have the bridegroom as their Lord. All ten believed their Lord was coming for them, and they were going to be a part of the party. All ten were waiting eagerly for His glorious appearance. However, when the Lord finally came, five of the ten were not ready. They'd run out of oil, it says, Jesus says, so they had to go to town to buy some more oil, and by the time they returned, the door to the wedding banquet had been closed. They weren't allowed to come in. Only five of the ten went into the feast. And the five on the outside cried, Lord, Lord, open to us. But the Lord replied, Truly I say to you, 
I do not know you. Why were these five members of the covenant kept outside of the kingdom of God? In the story, the reason is that they lacked oil in the parable. That's the image that Jesus uses. But, and so when the, when the Lord returned, they were oilless. But at bottom, the real problem is told to us at the end of the parable. They didn't know the Lord, or more specifically, the Lord did not know them. Those are two ways of saying the same thing. To use the language of Jesus with Nicodemus, the five on the outside, the five who didn't enter, were not born again. They had not experienced the new birth. And remember, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, who is certainly a member of the covenant. In fact, he's the teacher of Israel. They had not experienced the new birth. Jesus tells Nicodemus in John 3, unless a person is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God or enter the kingdom of God. Only five of the bridesmaids were born again, born of God. And so only five entered. Only five had what 1 John 3 calls God's seed. Uh, 1 John 3, 9 says that God plants his seed inside of every person who is born of God. And his seed ensures that they will keep the faith to the end. He, he says that those who have the seed cannot fall away. They cannot sin in a way that leads to death. They cannot keep on sinning. They cannot apostatize because they have the seed. Of course, we know that many baptized members of the covenant do sin unto death. They do fall away because they did not ever have the seed. Only five of the virgins had what 1 John 2 calls an anointing from the Holy One. 1 John 2.20 says that everyone who is truly in the faith, everyone who genuinely knows the truth, it says, has received an anointing from the Holy Spirit. That's John's language. This anointing, as one commentator put it, is the inward effectual calling of the Holy Spirit which is needed for genuine spiritual rebirth. And Jesus tells Nicodemus, Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. It's not something that we can see happen, but it's something that must happen, and it's something that the Spirit accomplishes as He wills, as God wills, as He sovereignly wills. The verses will cover this week and next week, Romans 8, 9 to 17. I only read uh, verses 9, 10, 11 today, but we're going to look at this passage and then the, the rest of this section next week are all about the new birth and its consequences. Even though the words born again and, or regeneration don't show up in these verses explicitly, the passage is infused with the truth of the new birth that has happened inside of every believer, every genuine Christian. And so this week and next week, we'll consider, we'll, we'll discover, be a better word, six radical changes that take place in every Christian at the moment he's born again, the moment he's regenerated, the, the very moment his spirit receives new life from the Holy Spirit. This isn't the first time God, that, that Paul's spoken of the new birth in Romans. 
at the end of chapter 2. In verses 28 and 29, Paul wrote, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is done outwardly in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one in the secret place. And his circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit. The secret place that Paul's talking about there is the heart. It refers to the invisible interior part of a person. True circumcision happens when the Holy Spirit regenerates a person's heart and turns him into a genuine Christian, a true Jew, we could say. In Romans 8, 9 to 17, we'll see six distinct changes that happen to every person who's been birthed into the kingdom of God. Six things about the new you, if you've been regenerated, if you've received that incorruptible seed. We'll look at the first four today, and then, uh, Lord willing, the last two next week. Number one about the new you is your new residence. Every believer has been transferred from one place of residence to another. Uh, from one realm, we, we might say, if we wanted another R word, from one realm of existence to another. In the, in the previous verses, Paul has just finished saying that the unbelievers, uh, unbelievers exist in the realm of this flesh. They are according to the flesh, Paul said in verse 5, and therefore they live according to the flesh, and they set their minds on the things of the flesh. And he goes on to say they're hostile to God. They're unable to obey the law. They, they, they can't do anything but rebel. But in verse 9, Paul makes a transition. You see that? And there's a contrast. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. To be in the Spirit means you live in, the, in, a, in a whole new realm. You've, you've gone from existing in the flesh to existing in the spirit. And, and the flesh here is sort of a, it's a term that refers to living in the sinful nature. And so when you live in the flesh, the only nature you have is the sinful one. But you've been transferred into the realm of the, the spirit. And this change, this change is even more radical than the transformation of an earthbound caterpillar into a floating butterfly. It's far more radical than that because it's completely supernatural. I mean, that, transform that transformation is amazing, but it kind of makes sense. We can explain it. The, the change that God has accomplished in you is more like taking a blind sea creature that lives at the bottom of the ocean and turning him into an eagle that can soar high above the earth and see for miles. That's how radical this change is. When God circumcised the foreskin of your heart, you received a new nature that's as different from your old nature as a blind sea creature is different from a keen-sighted bald eagle. You were also given a new 
realm, a new home, a new domain, a new mode of existence, a new place to live, which is as different from your old realm as the bottom of the sea is different from the heavens above. To be in the Spirit means that you no longer walk in the counsel of the ungodly or stand in the path of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. Psalm 1. Rather, now you walk by the Spirit so that you do not gratify the desires of the flesh. Galatians 5.16. You stand against the schemes of the devil. Ephesians 6.11. You've been raised up with Christ and seated with Him in the heavenly places. So you walk and stand and sit in completely different places now. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you died and your life is hidden with God in Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Colossians 3, 1-4. Your new eternal home is God Himself. If, if that doesn't astonish you, then nothing can. God has invited you into His eternal fellowship. And that's your eternal residence. When He reached down and changed who you are, what you are, when he went in and gave you a, a heart transplant, in that moment, he took you out of the realm of the flesh and into the realm of himself. That's how we need to think of this. The realm of the spirit is the realm of God. That He is your home. Your new residence as a born-again believer is God, the triune God, and nothing can snatch you out of your eternal home. So you moved into a new residence, and at the same time, a new resident moved inside of you. The rest of, verse, uh, the, rest of the first sentence in verse 9 says, if the Spirit of God lives in you. So there's a mutual indwelling here. Your new resident is the Holy Spirit. Paul continues in verse 9, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Without the Spirit, no one belongs to Christ. And everyone who has the Spirit belongs to Christ. In fact, Paul can even refer to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Christ in verse 9. Because where the Holy Spirit is, there is Christ. And where Christ is, there the Holy Spirit is. Already in verse 9, Paul's made mention of all three persons of the Trinity. This is a glorious thing, a wonderful place to go to, to meditate on the doctrine of the trinity he's mentioned the father the son and the holy spirit and he's going to do he's going to uh, the father's going to come up again christ is going to come up again as well as the spirit uh, each time he's actually in verse 9 he's actually referring to the holy spirit that's the that's the referent but he calls the spirit by three different names first he refers to him simply as the spirit i'm in verse 9 then as the Spirit of God, which alludes to God the Father. And he's going to make it even more explicit when we get to verse 11. And finally, in verse 9, he refers to him as the Spirit of Christ. 
All in verse 9. Now, Paul isn't confusing the three persons of the Trinity here. Um, you know, he, he, he's not identifying the Spirit as the Father or something like that, or the Father as the Spirit. No, what he's doing here is emphasizing that although the three persons of the Trinity are distinct from one another, they're distinct from one another, they're not separate. They're, they're inseparable. Distinct but inseparable. The three persons share the same divine essence and the same divine will. Where one of them is, there the others are also. So the point in verse 9 is that if you've been born again, you live in God and God lives in you. Your home is God and God's home is you. The hallmark of the authentic believer is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And the word indwell that I use, it, it means to make one's home in, to occupy, to live in as a, as a place of residence. Every child of Adam, which is all of us, is born with indwelling sin. We were occupied by that indwelling sin that we inherit from Adam and that we add to. But if you're a child of God, you also have the indwelling spirit who is greater than your indwelling sin, who fights and subdues your indwelling sin, who is victorious over your indwelling sin. And Jesus pro this, is, this, is just, this is what Jesus promised when he was still on earth. In John 14, he said that the world cannot receive the spirit of truth the world refers to unbelievers, those who do not know God. The world cannot receive the spirit of truth because the world neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, Jesus says. Why? Because he dwells in you and he will be in you. John 14, 17. This was a promise and the fulfillment of this promise uh, it, it is happening now. All true Christians have received the Spirit so that our individual bodies, our individual bodies have become homes for God. Your body is a home for God. Did you know that? That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. Your body, not your soul, your body is a temple. It's true of your soul too. Your body just means all of you. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. Your body is God's house. Paul, go, Paul goes on there to tell us what this means in the next verse. You are not your own. So your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, you are not your own, for you were bought, body and soul, at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. It's 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. The Spirit has moved into your body and taken over your life if you are a believer. But He's not there to take your resources. He's there to give you resources. He's there to give you everything you need for the Christian life. That The Spirit is a gift not a burden. He's there to help, not to hinder. He wants your good and he'll do whatever it takes to accomplish his good plan 
for your life. And the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ is just as patient and kind and good and faithful and gentle and lowly and slow to anger and abounding in mercy and gracious and tender-hearted and loving as Jesus is. He's the Spirit of Christ after all. Later in Romans 8 we'll discover that the indwelling spirit leads us, guides us, he helps us in our weaknesses, prays for us, and he even groans with us as we groan. In Galatians 4, 6, Paul says that the fundamental proof that you're truly uh, an adopted child of God is that God has put his Holy Spirit into your heart. And we're going to look at this more next week, but just a foretaste, God, Paul writes... God has sent, this is in Galatians, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, Galatians 4, 6. When you were birthed into the family of God, the spirit of God's son came into your heart. That's the, that's the language Paul uses. Now, some Christians and maybe certain traditions, maybe, maybe some of you here, maybe you tend to want to stay away from talk about God coming to live in our hearts because of how that that those phrases have been used in certain contexts. But according to Paul, you're only a born-again child of God if the Father has sent the Spirit of His Son to live in your heart and there to cry from inside of you, Abba, Father. Paul says plainly in verse 9 that if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, Christ's Spirit in you, you don't belong to Christ at all. And so there will be some on the last day, like the ten virgins, who will be shown not to have had the Spirit of God. This makes it clear that the Spirit is not given as a second work of grace that happens after you're regenerated. The gift... You know, Paul says if you don't have him, you, you don't belong to Christ at all. So you can't belong to Christ and then get the Spirit some, some later time. The gift of the Spirit is an initial blessing received at the moment God gives you a new heart and puts his incorruptible seed in you. Now, if you are among the people of God, but you are not born again, then you are tasting of the things of the Spirit, tasting of the things to come in the, in the next age. Uh, and one of the Reformed confessions says that you participate in the operations of the Spirit if you are a baptized Christian, but you're not born again. But what we're talking about here is something beyond that. We're talking about the work of the Spirit in those who have been born again. Those who have received the incorruptible seed. From the Spirit. A believer doesn't advance from being rescued by the Savior to being ruled by the Spirit. There's not a progression there. So you, you get saved by the Savior, then you get ruled by the Spirit at some point if that's the kind of Christian you decide you want to be, maybe. Both happen simultaneously. Right when you're saved, the Spirit of Christ moves in to begin His work of renovating your soul. He immediately begins the process of making you fit for eternal 
glory. A process that will not be completed until the end of your life and really until, not until Jesus returns and gives you your new body. But he begins the work in the spirit that he completes at death when he makes you perfectly righteous. So from the moment of regeneration to the moment of your death, the Holy Spirit is actively at work in your life, producing in you Christ-likeness and leading you into more and more personal holiness. And when you're lured back into the world, the Spirit of God is there to bring you back, to convict you. He causes you to confess your sins and to repent to, and then to forsake that sin and to walk in the newness of the life you've been given by the Spirit. He grants true, repent, true repentance and brings you back into the path, onto the path of Christ-likeness. After telling the Romans that the indwelling Spirit is the distinguishing mark of Christ's People, Paul goes on to indicate the major consequences of having the Spirit live inside of you. The, the first consequence is your new power. Paul says in verse 10, But if Christ is in you, even though the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Now, it may not be obvious right away here, how I get point three from verse 10. So I'll explain in a minute. <coughs> First, though, notice how Paul uses Christ and the Holy Spirit interchangeably. Now, first we talked about how he, he talks about the Spirit as the Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ, or just the Spirit. Well, now he's actually saying that Christ does what he just finished saying that the Spirit does. In verse 9, the Holy Spirit is in us. Now in verse 10, the Christ is in us. In other words, Christ is in us by the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit, through the ministry of the Spirit, where the Spirit of Christ is, <clears throat> there also Christ himself is. To have the Spirit in you is to have all of Christ in you. Not part of Christ, but the whole Christ, all of Christ. So even though the glorified body of Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father, Christ still indwells in you. He's present in you by His Spirit, all of Christ. And, and by the way, there's an analogy here to the presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper, not a, you know, not a one-for-one analogy. But just as Christ truly lives in the believer by His Spirit, so that we can say where Christ is in you because the Spirit is in you and the Spirit is in you, therefore Christ is in you. He is also present in the Lord's Supper by His Spirit. Where the Spirit is, there all of Christ is present. And we should never for a moment think that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is somehow unable to make all of Christ present, either in us or in the meal that we eat together every Sunday morning. What does Paul mean in verse 10 when he says that the body is dead because of sin? He simply means that our bodies are decaying, dying, moving rapidly. Sometimes it feels like toward death. Because of Adam's sin and because of our sin that we pile on, 
our bodies are wasting away. It's a consequence of the fall. Our bodies don't get redeemed in this world. They, they will get redeemed, as we'll see, but not in this wor world. Only our spirits, only our souls have been made alive in the new birth. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, even though our outer man, our body, is being destroyed, wasting away, some translations say it's really a strong word there, it's being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day, daily. A born-again believer, then, is, is a paradox. Uh, his body is decaying and dying, just like the bodies of unbelievers. No difference there in that, that rate of decay. But on the inside, he's becoming more and more like Christ, like his Savior or her Savior every day. Let's not forget here in this little, from this little phrase, let's let it remind us that death exists in the world and the dying that we already are feeling because of sin. Sin is the root, as someone has said, and the death, and death is the fruit. On the other hand, Paul says, the spirit is life because of righteousness. That's an odd phrase. It's, a, it's the key phrase in verse 10, uh, and, but it's, doesn't automatically make sense to us, but it speaks to your new power. If you, if you pull up, let me say something real quick, though, about the translations, the different translations that you might have that might even be represented here. If you pull up multiple translations of this verse, you'll notice that some really good you know, translations use a capital S for, for spirit, to refer to the Holy Spirit, and other equally good translations use the lowercase s to refer to the human spirit. Now, when I say equally good, I just mean in general. I don't, they're not both right. They can't, they can't be both right. But Paul is undoubtedly referring to the Holy Spirit here. Uh, and when he, the reason some translations want to put little s spirit is to make it match better with the first half, which talks about the bodies dying. And so maybe Paul's talking about the spirit inside of us as living. But we don't get that kind of symmetry that we'd like because he's talking about the Holy Spirit. And when, when he says that the Spirit is life, he's referring to the inner spiritual life that the Spirit produces in believers. And one of the reasons uh, from the text that we know that is um, that the Word is actually life. The Spirit is life. And the translations that put little s, Spirit, they always change it to the Spirit is alive kind of smooth it out and to make it match the first half. The body is dead. The spirit is alive. But the word is life, not alive. And nowhere else in the, in the scripture, when that word is used, is it, does it mean alive? There's a word for that. Paul uses the word life. And so it's the Holy Spirit, and he's giving inner spiritual life that he produces in believers. He's talking about the life-giving power that the Holy Spirit has infused into you. He's talking about the daily renewal of the Holy Spirit in the inner person. The power of the Holy Spirit living in you is stronger than the sin living in you if you belong to Christ and have His Spirit. The, the life principle 
inside of you is more powerful than the, the sin and death principle in you. And, and there are no doubt two principles, two powers, two forces waging war inside of you. But one of those powers, the new life-giving power of the Holy Spirit, is the prevailing power in the believer. It's this indwelling power that causes born-again believers to be decreasingly drawn to sin and increasingly enslaved to righteousness. The phrase, because of righteousness, explains the basis of this power. He's referring to the gospel. It's the basis of this life that the Spirit infuses into believers, that he, that he gives to believers for Christian living. The basis of your new life is the righteousness that God gives to believers by virtue of the work of Christ, by virtue of the death and resurrection of Jesus. When you are justified, when you are declared righteous because of what Christ has done, that, that justification, that being declared righteous is the basis of your imparted righteousness, the, the righteousness that the Holy Spirit imparts to you, puts inside of you and works in you from the inside so that it comes out as fruit. The life that the Holy Spirit has imparted to you is based on the righteousness of Christ that God has imputed to you. Your strength for living the Christian life. So your strength for living the Christian life has a source. It flows all the way from the cross. Not, not just the spirit, all the way from the cross and gets to you through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Do you see what Paul's doing here? The cross is the basis of your spiritual power in the present. And in verse 11, we'll see that it's also the basis of your physical resurrection in the future. So we've seen that it's the basis of your spiritual power in the presence. Now let's consider how it's the basis of your physical resurrection in the future. This is point four, your new prospect, which is to say your new future, what, what you have to see and look forward to because God has promised it in the future as a born-again believer. And this prospect is that your dead body will be raised from its grave. And in that moment, you'll be given a new body that'll never decay, never be destroyed, never get sick, never grow old and weak. Verse 11 says, Now if the spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then the one who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Notice that Paul refers to the Holy Spirit in verse 11 as the spirit of the father. He didn't say father explicitly. That, that's what it means, though, when he says the spirit of him or the spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead. The father raised Jesus from the dead. And Paul says here that he did it through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of Christ. So much so that he can say it's the Spirit of the Father. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of the Father. One of the most, I keep coming back, one of the most fascinating things about this passage is how 
interchangeable in one sense, can't take that too far, but how interchangeable the persons of the Trinity are. Paul isn't saying here that they're the same person. He's not a modalist. What he is showing us, though, is that just as God dwells in us and we dwell in him, there's that mutual indwelling. Just as that mutual indwelling is true, it's also true that the three persons of the Trinity indwell each other. And so there's a sense in which our in mutual indwelling with God is, uh, is, picture, is, is a picture of the indwelling of God, though that it, ha it has different characteristics and it's not all, it doesn't all work the same, obviously. But the Father indwells the Son and the Spirit. The Son indwells the Father and the Spirit. The Spirit indwells the Father and the Son. Hopefully I got all that straight, uh, said that right, but you know what I mean if I didn't. The, the, this means that when the Spirit lives in you, all of God lives in you. All three persons of God make their home in regenerated Christians. And so when you read this passage, just, just stop and think about the, the, not just the mutual indwelling uh, between you and God, but the mutual indwelling among the Godhead. God the Father in the Son and Spirit. God the Son in the Father and Spirit. God the Spirit in the Father and Son. Well, verse 11 says that if the Spirit of the Father lives in you, then he will raise your mortal body at the end of the age when Jesus returns. Just as surely as Christ's mortal body was raised from the dead on the third day, your mortal body will be raised from the dead on the last day. These are glorious truths. They should put smiles on our faces. These are wonderful promises. And do you see the story Paul's telling in these verses? He's telling the story of every believer and the story of the Holy Spirit in every believer. The story of God in every believer. Your inner person has been redeemed by regeneration during this age and your outer person, your body will be redeemed by resurrection at the end of this age. Say that again. Your inner person has, has been redeemed by regeneration in this age and your outer person, your body, will be redeemed by resurrection at the end of this age. Your total person, body and soul, will be redeemed. And this future prospect is certain because the spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead lives inside of you. That's the guarantee. You have the Spirit, you have this promise. It's interesting to think that the ministry of the Holy Spirit in you, in each of us, extends beyond our, our lives here. When you die and go to heaven, the Spirit isn't done with you. His ministry to you doesn't end at your death. At the end of this age, he's going to resurrect your body. He's going to transform it so that it looks like Jesus's glorious resurrection body. And then he's going to reunite your new perfected body 
to your already perfected spirit. You see, your spirit will be perfected when you die and you go to heaven. And your body will be perfected and glorified when Jesus comes back to raise his people from the dead. The ultimate destiny of your body is not death, but resurrection. Your ultimate hope is not to escape this body and go to heaven, and then that's it. The hope of the Christian isn't that the spirit will be freed from his body forever. We could say that it's our hope to be freed from this body, from this dying, decaying, sinful body. But our hope is that our spirit will be given a transformed body, an imperishable body, which will be a new and glorious vehicle for the spirit. And in this body will be free from death. We'll be free from disease, decay, pain, sorrow, sickness, and best of all, free from sin. Free from sin. Free from the presence of sin. Absolutely liberated from its penalty and power and, and presence. The takeaway from this passage, if we, if we wanted to distill it down to, to one main thing that... Paul wants you to know and believe after meditating on these verses is that the Spirit of God resides in you. He makes his home in you. And the result of the Spirit's indwelling is that you have a new life-giving power and a new prospect of resurrection life. And I, I hope you can see the logic and the flow of this passage. And here's Paul's argument in one sentence, a summary. You live in the Spirit, the Spirit lives in you, and the consequences of having the Spirit in you are spiritual life in the present and physical life in the future. I'll say that again. You live in the Spirit, the Spirit lives in you, and the consequences of having the Spirit in you are spiritual life in the present, and physical life in the future. You've been given resurrection life in your inner person, in your spirit, in this world, and you'll be given resurrection life in your outer person, in your body, in the world to come. You've been given power for the Christian life now, and you've been given the promise of more life even better life in the world to come. Return next week to discover two more consequences of, indwelling, of the indwelling spirit, your new obligation and your new adoptive father. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your spirit, the Holy Spirit, who lives in us, who has made his home in us. Help us to be faithful temples of the Spirit who glorify you, God, who imitate 
our Savior, who walk in the newness of life. We need your help for this. We thank you for accomplishing it in us. Please continue the good work that you've begun. For Christ's sake, amen.